You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. And he asked them, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah must come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing revelation of Jesus, not just in the word, but of this experience. Um, We are seeing this through Peter's eyes, through the gospel writer of Mark, and God, we just want to marvel at Jesus today for a few minutes, and just think about all of the implications of, of what is happening in this passage. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. And may we live according to it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I don't know if you've ever beheld something just really glorious that sort of took your breath away, something that just really was stunning and overwhelming and unexpected. That's really what we have here. Um, I can think of one experience, I can think of many, but one that just came to my mind is, is this. You can show this, Ben. Uh, and in college, during spring break, I went on a hike with uh, some friends of mine, and they were taking me to this place. And I didn't really understand where we were going. We went down this long trail. We were hiking like six, seven miles, and then all of a sudden, you started to hear this rushing water. It's mostly desert. This is, like, I think, this is in Arizona. Yeah. yeah, just really, really. And then all of a sudden, you started to hear water, and, see, and then we came around the corner, and we saw that waterfall right there on the top left, and it just was like, whoa, just beautiful, stunningly beautiful, blue water, and uh, and then just this gorgeous waterfall, and then it cascades out from there, and it was just sort of like stunning. The sound. The smell, the, the view, the colors, it was just overwhelming. And then uh, my friend said, oh wait, there's a little bit more. So we walked another mile and a half, and we started to hear the water rushing again. And then all of a sudden, we just reached this trail, and then it just drops off. And it's just into this big, giant blue pool, and you've got this 200-foot waterfall that you're just doing. He's like, this is where we're camping. So we camped like literally at the top of that, white, uh, that, that bottom right one. And we spent a few days just sort of wandering up and down. This is a little tributary that leads down into the Grand Canyon. So that's Havasupai Falls and Mooney Falls. And it was just amazing. It was just a stunning thing that I just was not expecting. And all of a sudden, this glory of creation sort of opened up. And just the beauty of what God had made and the colors and the sounds and the experiences uh, were just overwhelming and stunning. And this pales in comparison 
to the overwhelming beauty and stunningness of what the three apostles experienced with Jesus. So I want to call our, today's message a glimpse of glory. This is a minor glimpse of glory, what the, which Peter, James, and John encounter on the Mount of Transfiguration is a glory unparalleled, unparalleled in, uh, in Scripture. And it's the future of all of us. We will one day see Jesus in his, in his glorified state. This is a stunning thing. If we think about the context of Mark, we go back in chapter 8, and Jesus asked Peter, who do the people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And, and then Jesus says, don't tell anybody yet. And then he begins to tell them, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, that he is going to suffer and he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. And Peter confronts him and goes, no, I don't think so. Rebukes Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him back and calls him Satan. Uh, so you get Peter, who kind of is getting it, sort of half-seeing but not fully seeing. He's both confessing Jesus rightly but confused about Jesus' mission. And we're in this point in the book where we're moving from uh, validation of who Jesus is as the Son of God and moving towards what is his mission? What did he come to do? And it's really confusing for the disciples for several chapters now, really through the end of the book, is that they don't understand that Jesus' Messiah is not coming to overthrow Rome and set up a political kingdom, but he's coming to die as a sin bearer. To give his life as a ransom for many, as we'll see in a couple of chapters. And then after he rebukes Peter and says, you know, don't get in my way here. Get behind me, Satan. This is the direction I have to go. I have to go to the cross. That is necessary, that I die and rise again. He then turns to the crowds and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we get this call, this stunning call to follow Jesus in cross-bearing discipleship. But that's necessary. That's baseline elementary Christianity. It's to take up your instrument of death and follow Jesus in a self-denying fellowship with Jesus, this discipleship. And then a promise in chapter 9, verse 1, that there will be some who will get a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom before they die. There will be some there that won't pass away until they see Jesus in his glory, see the kingdom in its glory. So if I were to summarize today's message, this passage, like you get nothing else, get this sentence. This passage right here is a tangible comprehensive, supernatural endorsement of Jesus' identity and ministry. His mission, I should say. It's a tangible, it's something they actually experience with their senses. Comprehensive, because it's going to be Moses, Elijah, God the Father. They're going to experience this comprehensive endorsement, supernatural endorsement of Jesus' identity. This is my beloved son and his mission. Listen to him. This cross-bearing discipleship. Okay? That's the bottom line of what we're going here. And what I want us to do is break this into two parts. First, we're going to look at going up to behold Jesus' glory in verses 2 through 8. Then, coming back down, we're going to see some questioning of Jesus' mission by the disciples. Okay, So two parts, and then within those parts, I want us to behold a bunch of things in the first uh, in verses 2 through 8. First, I want you to behold the setting. Okay? So we're beholding Jesus' glory. I want to show you. I just want to take like this diamond of the transfiguration and just turn it and let it catch the light for you to see the different faces of it. Because every verse is hitting on something very significant about Jesus. So I just want to go verse by verse and just show you as the light catches each of the little facets of the diamond of the, true, true, of, of the transfiguration. I just want you to see and marvel at, at what a stunning um, event this is. So first of all, just look at the setting. Verse 2, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He transformed in front of them. Think of the parallels to Exodus chapter 24 that Rachel read earlier. 
In Exodus chapter 4, God has brought his people out of the land of Egypt. They're gathered around Mount Sinai. God is, is manifesting himself on the top of this mountain. And God calls Moses to come up to the mountain to receive his law. That's what's happening in chapter 24 of Exodus. And there's so many parallels as Jesus takes his people up on the mountain. He's just told them what following him will look like. It will look like cross-bearing discipleship. And then he takes them up this mountain. And there's so many parallels between that and Exodus 24, where Moses goes up on the mountain. One commentator said this, says, you notice that there's a mountain setting between the two. That this is like almost like a new Sinai. Watch for more, uh, I'm sorry, the mountain setting, the unusual Markin mention of six days. Mark very rarely mentions how many days, but here he goes, there's six days. And in, in Exodus chapter 24, it says that they were on the mountain and God met with them for six days. God spoke to them for six days. I don't know if you remember that. Rachel read just a few minutes. So Mark is making this connection. Moses and Jesus are both taking three individuals along with them. So there's this connection of three. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up, and Moses takes three, three people up from um, Exodus chapter 24. Do you want to go? Does it show? All right, there we go. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And Jesus took, or Moses took three up with him. Right there, we just had his assistant message. But if you look back in 24, you would see that there's a parallel there. So this is significant. This is like a new, this is like a new Moses going up to meet with God and coming down. Look at verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3. So don't, don't just look at the setting. Mark is trying to pull us together like, okay, this is something new. This is a new exodus that's happening, being led by a new and better Moses. Then it says, behold his appearance. Um, that's verse, uh, look at verse 3, I'm sorry. Behold his appearance in verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one could bleach them. In Exodus 34, after the giving of the law, when Moses finally comes down the mountain, in Exodus 34, it says that his, his face shone. So he had this shining face. In fact, it's, instead of it just being his face like with Moses, it's all of Jesus is shining. There's a connection there. And we see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So this experience is like beholding Yahweh. God, Israel is God. It's dressed like this. Psalm 104, 1 and 2. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light and with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So the setting is pointing back to this Moses time. We see his appearance is giving the appearance of one who is divine, like Yahweh. We are seeing Jesus more as he really is. It's a foreshadowing of the resurrection. It's like seeing Yahweh in the flesh. These descriptions of the Old Testament, Jesus is actually looking like the descriptions of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Look at verse 4. Behold his companions. Verse 4. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now Moses, in the Old Testament, represents the giver of the law. He's the representation of the law. Elijah is the quintessential prophet, maybe the most famous prophet of the Old Testament. And so we have the Law and the Prophets. That's a summary of saying the Old Testament. This is a summary. This is, this is representatives of the Old Testament, the Old Law, the Old Covenant, saying all of this was meant to come to him. Because there had been some tension between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, because Jesus is redefining the Sabbath. He's abolishing the food laws. 
Are Jesus, is Jesus in conflict with the Old Testament? And here we get a divine endorsement that Moses and the Elijah go, we bow to him. He gives the authoritative interpretation of our word. He's the one. We, the Old Testament, the, the law and the prophets, Jesus is not something starting new, but completing something old and carrying it into something He's the authoritative, oh, this is an authoritative Old Testament endorsement of Jesus. The law and the prophets are speaking of Jesus. Carson and Beale in their commentary say, Beyond both Moses the lawgiver and Elijah the par paradigmatic prophet, that's a hard word, Jesus is the living embodiment of the word, of a new Torah, around whom a reconstituted people of God gather in a new exodus. It's a new exodus with a new people. And it's about cross-bearing, not Torah-keeping. Cross-bearing discipleship in particular are the essence of this new constituted people that are not bound together by physical birth in the same family, but by spiritual birth through faith in Jesus. The Torah is not what defines them, the cross-bearing discipleship. Not only is Jesus the law's supreme interpreter, but he also carries the authority of the one he gave. He's the supreme interpreter. He is the lawgiver. He is the law completer. He goes on to say, their pairing of Moses and Elijah makes sense in that both faced rejection at the hands of their people. Both were vindicated by God in the end. Both met and spoke with God on Sinai, like we saw in Exodus 24. But we also see Elijah in 1 Kings 19 on that same mountain meeting with God. Thus, the presence of Moses and Elijah strongly suggests that Israel's end-time salvation has come. We have turned the page to a new era that is a completion of the old era, carrying forward of it. And if you look in your Bible at the very last words of the Old Testament, look what it says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. So as the Old Testament brings to a close, we enter 400 years of silence while we're waiting for the Messiah to come. Here's what Malachi says. This is how the Old Testament sort of ends and leaves us hanging. It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and the rules I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi, the Old Testament actually ends. All of that long story, all of these people waiting, ends with a statement about Moses and Elijah. Anticipate that. They're going to point to what we're going for here. This new covenant is going to be endorsed by these two. So you see the significance of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, pointing to Jesus, pointing to him, submitting to him. And then in verse 7, behold his announcement. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So God the Father breaks through the barrier between earth and heaven. And in this moment, with the glorified Christ standing there, Moses and Elijah on either side of him going, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to him. And it's also again, Moses and Elijah going, yep, listen to him. He is the center of it all. He's the one. This echoes back to the Messianic Psalm, Psalm chapter two, verse seven. For God says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So we get this promise in Psalm chapter 2, a thousand years before Christ. 
that there will be one that will be called the Son of God. And he will come, and he will rule the nations, he will be the messianic king. Carson and Beale again say this, listen to him, is not only referring to his teaching in general, but the particular necessity of his crucifixion and the non-negotiable call to Christ-bearing discipleship. Because they just heard, the disciples just heard something pretty shocking. If you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. That's a hard thing to hear. And now this divine endorsement from God the Father goes, yes, that's the plan. Listen to him. He speaks for me. He speaks. And listen to him. Yes, this is the plan. He is the Son of God. Listen to him. And the only way into my kingdom is through cross-bearing discipleship. Listen to him. He speaks for God. You will be tempted to go back to Judaism, to Moses and Elijah. And this moment is to show you, listen to Jesus. To carry over elements of the Old Testament, but they all point to him. Moses and Elijah, they point to him. They supersede. They are superseded by Jesus. They must be interpreted in and through Jesus. And so, listen to him. Not them, him. Right? Moses himself knew 1,500 years before this that there would be a prophet that would come that would be, great, be greater than himself. Moses himself prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. Isn't that amazing? Moses said, there will be someone who will resemble me. He'll go up on a mountain, He'll be, and we see this resemblance. Mark is pulling on that thread going, just like Moses, he went up, but he's a bigger Moses, he's a better Moses. And the old Moses points to him, endorses him, and says, above all, listen to him. And then in verse 8, behold his preeminence. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is important, this is significant, because Jesus alone shines among them. Moses and Elijah, they fade to the background. And it is Jesus who is the one who brings the kingdom. Moses can't bring the kingdom. Elijah can't bring the kingdom. The Old Testament doesn't bring the kingdom. It tees Jesus up to bring the kingdom. The law and the prophets point to Jesus and then fade into the background leaving only Jesus as the center of it all. Not Jesus plus Moses. Not Jesus plus the law. Just Jesus as the one who is glorified in front of them and who walks down the mountain with them. Moses and Elijah go back to their place. Jesus is the one who carries this mission forward in Jesus alone. One commentator said the transfiguration of Jesus is, the sing is a singular event in ancient literature. It has no analogy in the Bible or in the extra-biblical literature from the Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, Rabbinic literature, Qumran, Nagamadi, or the Hellenistic literature as a whole. It is an utterly unique literary description. It is only Jesus in all of literature that has this kind of experience. Jesus is uniquely singular in this. He is unique. He alone stands. He is the one alone that comes down the mountain and brings the kingdom of God. So, do you see how significant this is? How many threads this is pulling together? How this is showing a relationship between Old Testament and New Testament, the prophets and Moses to Jesus, and how God himself goes, this one, it is all funneling into him. Listen to him. View everything in and through him. Add nothing to him. Now, I skipped over verses 5 and 6. We have Peter's ignorant proposal, right? Conversation is happening between Elijah and Moses and Jesus. And Peter's going, I got an idea, guys. Let's make a campsite. It says, verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Thanks for inviting us to your party, to your glorification party with your friends. Let us make three tents, one for you, 
One for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 6, for he did not know what to say, and they were terrified. So we make fun of this, but this is not really that funny for them. Peter often says things and thinks later. And I think if we're getting Mark, if Mark is Peter's uh, protege and is writing down Peter's recollection, Peter may be still trembling <laughs> from this experience. Why does Peter say this? Some say that Peter just wants to, he, Peter wants to create a shrine for his esteemed guests. This is an act of worship. It could be. Maybe he wants to prolong the experience with them. That maybe this could last more than just a few moments or a few days. If we set up tents, we could kind of, we could hang out. And uh, we could get, man, we could get Moses himself, what the Old Testament says. And Elijah himself about what faithfulness to the covenant looks like. And then we could get Jesus to sort of like round it out, right? Like show the completion. Like what a cool thing it would be to sit around the campfire with these guys, right? So maybe that's it. Maybe it's a connection to the feast of tabernacles and booths as God's people are being brought out of exile and they're dwelling in tents, booths, tabernacles. There's a whole festival remembering all those years spent in the, in the wilderness waiting for the, for the promise of God. Already delivered, but not yet delivered. And the sense of Moses and Elijah, maybe, maybe this is like we're already delivered. Like here's the divine one. He's here with divine endorsement and the voice from heaven. And let's... Let's then begin to start set up camp. Maybe this will be a new Jerusalem. This will be a new temple here. Like you guys stay here. We'll go out and we'll get people to come here. Let's, let's start the whole tabernacle process by which this could be the place where people come and meet God. Maybe this could be the kingdom and we could start right here. We could start this mountain as the kingdom and then we'll just extend its borders. We'll just begin to take territory and this will be like a political kingdom and we'll just enlarge our borders until Moses and Jesus and Elijah are ruling together under God's authority. Who knows? Maybe all of those things. Maybe none of those things. You see, Jews at the time rightly believed that God would one day come and tabernacle again with his people. Like in, the, like in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and now there was a separation. God doesn't dwell with his people like he used to. The people are corrupted. And then God created a provision by which he would dwell within his tabernacle or in his temple. But there was all kinds of barriers between to just remind them that this is not the full dwelling of God with them. And even then, even the partial dwelling with him, there are layers. There, there are separation. Like we can't be in the presence of a holy God in our sin. But there was this hope one day that God would cleanse his people. He would reconstitute them in a way that he would actually dwell with them in the fullest sense of the word. That's what they were looking forward to. And Peter rightly understands that this is the beginning of that. That God is dwelling among his people. Peter thinking maybe this is a new Sinai, a new temple, a new place to meet with God. But what Peter hasn't quite grasped is that Jesus himself is actually the earthly presence of God. That Jesus is the one and true temple. John says this in his gospel, and he was one of the ones standing there. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacle, tented among us. Same word. Same word that Peter's like, we want to make some tents and some tabernacles for you guys so that we can always be with you. Well, John says later in his gospel, John 1, the word became flesh and he came and tabernacled with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That sounds like the transfiguration, doesn't it? We saw him in his glory. He moved into our neighborhood. Jesus, in his man suit, came and tabernacled among us. He moved into our neighborhood. And he's the only son from the Father. You know how we know that? We heard God say it. It's full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus, in Jesus, God has tabernacled with his people. 
not in a tent, but in human flesh. And God will one day, through Jesus, come and tabernacle with his people forever. Peter started to put his finger on this, doesn't quite get it, but he is pointed in the right direction. We mock Peter here, but there's a, there's a good instinct in Peter here of wanting God to dwell with his people permanently. It's just not yet in the fullness that he desires. What he's really looking forward to and what will really come is in Revelation 21. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, literally tabernacle, tent with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Peter has the right instincts, it's just not yet. There has to be a death and resurrection first. There has to be that first. Peter is more right than he knows, but it is so much more and better than he thinks at the moment. So that's what's going on there. He doesn't know what to say. He's got some good instincts. He's just jumping the gun a little bit. Again, the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't seem like it's necessary yet. This is heaven on earth right now. Let's make this happen. Let's make this permanent. Let's move this out from here. Not yet. Not yet there yet. So then verses 9 through 13, we've had the going out to behold Jesus' glory. So much symbolism, so much significance in that. Now we have coming back down the mountain, coming back down to reality after the camp high. Great week at camp. They're coming back down to the real life, and they have questions. So they're questioning Jesus and his mission. What, how is this supposed to play out, Jesus? So look at verse 9. We have a command to silence until the resurrection. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what he, they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So what they have experienced, they will be unable to fully explain to others until Jesus completes his mission. Get that? You can't fully... This is, I think, what he's telling them. You can't fully explain what you just experienced until you see me die on today. The whole plan of God has to be seen through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And until that happens, and the Holy Spirit comes and opens your eyes to that, you will get this wrong in how you explain it to others. I must complete my mission before the full significance of this can be understood and passed along. The necessity of the cross. One commentator says this command reinforces that the cross and resurrection of Jesus are the only vantage point from which Jesus' life and ministry can be understood. It's part of why he's telling people to be quiet all the time. Because just being a traveling healer who can do God's stuff is not enough. He has to die as a sin bearer for people and rise again. Until the cross and resurrection, all other knowledge of Jesus is inadequate and peripheral. It's not enough. It's essential, but it's not sufficient until Jesus finishes his work. With that command, verse 10, there's confusion about the meaning of resurrection and Elijah's coming. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. Again, they're having a hard time reconciling the fact that the Jewish Messiah must suffer and die. So what does resurrection from the dead mean? Does he mean at the end of time? Does he mean, does he mean right now? And so they have questions about that. 
The Jews conceived of a resurrection of the dead taking place at the end of the age when graves would be opened up and the dead would rise for final judgment. Daniel 12 talks about this. But Jesus just said that he would rise after three days. So if you put yourself in their shoes, it's understandable that they would be confused. Right? Like if you're with them and you don't know how the Christian story plays out, you would be confused too right? by rising from the dead. So we give these guys a little bit of a break. This is still an unfolding mystery. They literally just saw him and are trying to see how this fits together with what they've already been taught, what they've been taught growing up their whole life. That their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures is not quite right. And they know that he is connected to the coming Messiah, but this dying and rising again is just really a difficult thing to get their head around. So they begin to ask about Elijah. Now if you remember, there was earlier speculation about Elijah in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8. Maybe Jesus actually is, 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 uh, is the Messiah. Remember that? When Herod Antipas heard about Jesus, and he was like, oh no, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or, right? Or maybe when, or maybe this is, you know, maybe this is Elijah. Maybe this is one of the prophets. When he asked them and said, who do the people say that I am? Well, some of you think that maybe you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Right? And so these guys, likewise, have some confusion. Okay, so we just saw Elijah on the mountain. We know from our Bibles, they're doing some good reasoning here, we know from our Bibles that he is supposed to come before the great day. We've read Malachi 4, right? We just read it a few minutes ago. We know that he's supposed to come before the great day of the Lord, but you're here. When did Elijah come? That's their question. When did Elijah come? And then we get clarification from Jesus in verses 12 through 13. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's like, hey, even in the midst of this Elijah thing, don't forget, my mission is to come and die. Right? He's trying to weave all this together. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Who is he talking about? John the Baptist. Exactly. And you know what happened to when Elijah did come? He called out the king on his immorality, and he got his head taken. Even the one that was supposed to come before the Christ, even he suffered and died. The Christ will come and suffer and die. He was a forerunner. He came and prepared God's people. Not just through repentance and through baptism, but also through death. He took up his cross and followed me, ahead of me. Right? I'm going to take up my cross and die for you and rise again. You, like John the Baptist, like me, must take up your cross and it's going to happen. There's a pattern here of the cross-shaped life, of denying yourself and following him. They did him whatever they pleased. They killed him. And in that sense, Elijah or John the Baptist is more of a forerunner than he even maybe intended to be. A forerunner of suffering. So, this big picture of going up, beholding Jesus' glory, and coming down with questions. We're going to continue that story next week. But here's the bottom line. Here's just some things we can take away from this. First is this, Jesus is the Messianic Son of God, promised in the Old Testament. This is a comprehensive endorsement. Law and the Prophets, whole Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, the two superheroes of the Old Testament, right? You couldn't get, you'd have a hard time finding people more credible in the Old Testament. He's thoroughly endorsed as the Son of God. He's thoroughly enjoyed, endorsed as Israel's Messiah, as Israel's King, by Moses and Elijah. It's like if Jesus had a resume and he's putting down his references, you would call Moses and Elijah and God the Father. You go, is this guy legit? 
Yes, yes, yes. Everything I wrote about was about him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus has good references, right? He meets the qualifications to be Israel's Messiah, the one true king, the restorer of it all. Secondly, Jesus is going to die and rise again. This is not an accident. This is part of the plan. When God the Father is telling them to listen to him, there's no, it is not by accident that it comes right after he said the Son of Man must suffer and die. He's like, I, I know this is hard to get through your heads. You need to listen to him. He must suffer and die for the kingdom to come. Right. Jesus going to die and rise again is not an accident of history. It's not God's plan B. Oh, it didn't work out. The law didn't work out. Or, man, Jesus is mission. And so now God's kind of trying to pick up the pieces and come up with a plan B. And, oh, I'll just, I'll just take this and, and make, it, make it work. No, this was the plan from eternity past. That God would send his son into the world to die and rise again as an atonement for sin. This was the eternal plan. And this voice from heaven confirms that. Third, Jesus is the new and better prophet. He is the new and better Moses, bringing a new law, bringing a completion of the law. He is the new and better prophet, speaking God's word with authority, calling us to faithfulness to the new covenant. Hebrews and Galatians unpack this how Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment of those things. He's the completion of those things. One commentator says Jesus is the climax of salvation history and the fulfillment of what Moses and Elijah came to accomplish. He's leading a new and better exodus. Not out of Egypt, but out of sin. Out of condemnation before God through a blood atonement. He's giving a new and better Torah. Jesus is the core of the Old Testament law. We saw that. The Sabbath, the food laws, the festivals, all of those things find their fulfillment in Jesus, find their completion in Him. Here's an illustration. I've got a picture. Is that, it's like, you know, when you see the shuttle launches, you got the two turbo boosters that get the shuttle. The shuttle's the main thing, but the turbo boosters are what get it off the ground and get it moving, and then when it gets to a certain elevation, those fall off, and the main thing, the main shuttle continues. Moses and Elijah are almost like those turbo boosters. The law and the prophets are to reveal who God is and show us our need for a Savior and show us what that Savior will look like and we'll find him among these people. And then when that one comes, Moses and Elijah fade into the background. And it is Jesus who continues. They served a purpose. When it says that Jesus fulfills the law, when it says that they, he's not saying that they don't matter, these boosters are critical to the mission of God, but they're temporary. To get to the main thing that transports us into the kingdom. It's just like these boosters. So Moses and Elijah are standing there going, we were temporary. They, this one is the one who is eternal. Listen to him. And so we see that Moses and Elijah fade in the background and only Jesus remains. Listen to him. So there is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament and a discontinuity. There's a continuity and a discontinuity. Some things come to Jesus and find their completion and move on. Some things come to an abrupt end because they were always meant to just get to this one. Gathering a new and better people. Marked not by biological birth, but by spiritual birth. The confession of Jesus and the cross-bearing discipleship. Jesus says in John 5 to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think in them they have life. But I tell you, they testify about me. They testify about me. The engine was always to get you 
to God to get you to me. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Because this begins, this continues to be a real challenge for the Jewish people. How do we hold on to what we've been given all these years? How does that relate to who Jesus is? And to try to put those two things together, Paul says this about his beloved Jewish brothers. He says this in Romans chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to, to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own through the Mosaic law. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own, and they don't submit to God's righteousness through Christ. But Christ is the end of the law. Moses pledges for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the completion of that. He's what that was getting us to. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. And who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead, we don't have to do any works. But what does it say? That the word is near you, it is in your mouth, it is in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes it is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See that? The law and the prophets were always to get us to him. And lastly, Jesus transforms us by beholding his glory. This word transfigured in verse 3, is that right, verse 3? He was transfigured before them. Is the Greek word metamorpho. What does that sound like? Metamorphosis. Morph meaning form, meta meaning changing, right, sorry. Changing of form. This word is only used four times in the entire New Testament. One is in Matthew, one is in our text here. One is in Matthew 17, speaking of the Transfiguration. So the same passage. Two other times it's mentioned. Metamorpho. This transfigured, this being transformed from a normal looking human to a glorified one. And it says in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transfigured, like Jesus. By the renewal of your mind, that you may be, that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, with unveiled face, there will be nothing that stands between us and the glory of God anymore. There will be no barriers between us and Him. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed, transfigured, into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see that? What they're experiencing on the mountain is a foreshadowing of their own experience that by beholding Jesus, they will become, they will begin to shine too. Their sins, their sin nature, all of that will melt away in the presence of Jesus, and they will become transfigured as well. It's not just that we behold the glory of Christ, that would be enough, but it's even better. We will be transformed by beholding the glory of Christ. By beholding him. So, what we've just experienced today by beholding Christ through his word is changing you a little bit more into his image today. If you're hearing with faith, if you're hearing with faith, you are being changed a little bit more. You're being transfigured just a little bit more like him. Isn't that awesome? That's happening right now. 
One commentator says, disciples are not in fellowship with Jesus because of their knowledge. Peter proves that. Not because of their virtue or their abilities or their law-keeping. They are in fellowship solely because of Jesus' sovereign call, and they remain in fellowship only because of his faithfulness to them. Their discipleship does not depend on their knowledge and understanding, but on continuing to follow where Jesus leads, holding him. Now, we're supposed to grow in all those other things, but what keeps us there is the fact that we're going to follow Jesus' cross-shaped discipleship, beholding him in his glory, and he will change us. He will change us into his image. Lastly, Jesus demands we follow him with cross-bearing discipleship. Because that's the call, right? Listen to him. And what did he just say in the verses before? If you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. The identity of Jesus, him being the Son of God, and the mission of Jesus, crucifixion and resurrection, are confirmed by God's voice and the Old Testament scriptures. The call, the cross-bearing discipleship, is the only way to enter the kingdom. And we see that John the Baptist suffered, and that Christ suffered. Moses suffered, Elijah suffered. We also must be willing to take up our suffering. And then glory. If you've not yet put your faith and trust in Christ, look to him. He's the one that it's all pointing to. All of the Old Testament, everything is driving you to this moment. And I hope that you hear through the scriptures God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Confess your sins. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Take up your cross and follow him. And enter the kingdom of life where you will be transfigured. Amen? Beautiful thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you. And as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, God, we pray that we would think long and well about who you are and what the scriptures say that you are with the Old Testament as they're driving us to Jesus and then we see in this moment this visceral, tangible, supernatural endorsement of Jesus being the reason of all of it, being the point of all of it. All of it was meant to get us to Jesus, to realize our need for him because of our sin and to rejoice that you have met our needs through the personal work of Christ. I pray that we would unite ourselves to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you for this symbol through the Lord's Supper that represents your body and blood given for us. And that just as we take food into our bodies and it sustains us, so also by faith we take Christ and his sacrifice. And that alone saves us. God, I pray that you would give us faith. Give us faith to believe what we've read here. Give us belief. Give us faith and diligence to follow Jesus as he commands. We thank you for all of the implications of this text. And we pray, God, that you would sustain and strengthen us for our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.